Where are you going, lady? Um, I want to see the show. What's the password? Um, snap judgment. Okay, go on in. Welcome to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and I have a very, very dear friend who was dealing with some challenges. He came to my house, we were kicking it, we had a couple brews. He was staying at a transitional facility in San Francisco. It came time for him to go, and he said, hey, you promised me a ride. And I'm like, all right, all right. We got in the car to make that trip from Oakland to San Francisco. But as soon as I looked at the highway, I knew there was going to be trouble. It was a parking lot. A 30-minute trip just morphed into four or five hours. It was time I didn't have. Hey, man, I'm going to take you to the BART train station. You can make it faster that way. Just take the BART to the 38 Geary bus. You'll be all set. My friend was like, no, no, you promised me a ride. You promised me. I'm like, man, what is your problem? Get on the bus. And he started trying to tell me the bus is dangerous and the people out to get him and all this nonsense. I'm like, Negro, please. This is the same bus I take to work every day. Every day. Stop tripping and please get up out of my ride. I pull up to the station and he's screaming. His spittle flying all out of his mouth. And I'm like, just calm down. What the hell is wrong with you? Calm down. He finally gets out of my car and slams the door. You're welcome. Taking all this nonsense, the bus is dangerous. He needed a ride all the way. What he needed was to get his medication adjusted. We're talking the most used bus route in the whole city of San Francisco. He needed to stop tripping because I had stuff to do, and that's just what I did. It was a couple weeks later on the weekend, and I realized I was going to have to do that, which I hated most in the world, work on Saturday. And worse than that, I actually had to go to the office. I had to go in because there wasn't going to be anybody there. I was going to knock this work out, and I was going to be out. And, you know, normally, I like to keep it sharp. You know, my shoes shine, at least a sport coat, because you never know. But this was Saturday. I had a hoodie, tore up jeans, old Nikes, my backpack. I wasn't trying to impress anybody. And driving to the city would have been ignorant, so I caught the BART train to downtown San Francisco and waited for the bus, the 38 Geary. Now, I've got a backpack that I keep everything important. Laptop, notebook, storage, ID, everything, everything. I know how stupid this is, and I'm trying to change, but that's what I did. And this is a real story. So, me and my backpack got on the bus. We got a seat near the back. I took my notebook out just like normal, started scribbling. Then I hear this, what's in the bag? And I look up, and it's this, this big fella, yellow eyes, all looking at me, huh? I say, what's in the bag? Oh, 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 you mean this bag? <laughs> this bag. This bag here is chock full of none of your damn business. I went back to my notebook. I, I asked you a question. I, I said, what's up in the backpack? Then I saw more people slinking back to where I was sitting. One smelled like urine, and the other had this big, 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 big old smile. Right then, right then, it occurred to me, I was in trouble. Cause they smelled a mark and somehow that mark was me. Kept my head down, looking at my notebook. There was a smack. Yellow eyes knocked my notebook to the ground and everybody around got real quiet. He was in my face now. I said, what's in the backpack? I didn't have a choice. I bent down, I picked up the notebook, I picked up the backpack, then I slammed Mr. Yellow Eye as hard as I could against the side of the bus. His head and back hit the window hard, and I pressed my arm against his throat. Who next? Who wants some of this next? Who next? Who wants some? And I'm cranking my arm into his throat. I'm slamming his head. Who next? And the bus bus stops. The door opens. Me and my backpack walk out. And I'm praying, please, 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 don't let anybody follow me off this bus. Please, please, please do not let anyone follow me off this bus. Please. The bus, it takes off. 
and I'm standing there all by myself, and I start shaking. I'm leaning against the street sign because my legs won't work, and I, and I realize nobody has ever messed with me on the bus when I'm dressed for work. Never. Never. But when I'm dressed like my friend, the 38 Geary, it's a whole different bus. If you're a woman, if you're old, if you're foreign, if you're short, it's a different bus. It's a different world. Today on Snap Judgment, Invisible Cities, you think you know a place? You do not. Strap in. At last, you take the blue pill. The story ends. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I had a world of my own, everything would be nonsense. Nothing would be what it is. Wow. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. The The chance chance to to begin begin again again in a golden land of opportunity and adventure. This place is real, isn't it? Looks like a different world. product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. This place is getting to me. I think I'm getting the fear. What the? Uh, No, go check it out. (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, God. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topping. There is another world beneath it, the real world. And if you want to survive it, you better learn to pull the trigger. Get me out of here. So you go, I never come back. Our next story is by this brother, Delphine Vigil. Delphine Vigil, you're gonna see as the story unfolds, that he is aptly named Vigil because he's always on the lookout. He's over there in San Francisco, right across the bay from Oakland. And one day, he discovered something just by accident, looking down at his shoes that turned into an obsession. And I'm going to let him tell you the rest of the story. Delphine Vigil. first found Nico by staring at the sidewalks and I did that because I was recently laid off from my job at the Chronicle. One of my favorite things was always to kind of get lost in San Francisco and stare at things that I normally might have looked past and then I saw his name written in the sidewalk, Nico, and I thought it was interesting and then a block later I found his name again, Nico. I turned a corner through Chinatown into North Beach and I found another one. You know, I would find them not just in North Beach but Chinatown, Russian Hill, Telegraph Hill. They would be references to the street name, like Nico on Filbert or Nico on Ninth, Nico downtown. And and then the personality of me was really coy. It was like, Nico is here, Nico gets it all. What was interesting is the order in which I found them was sometimes kind of synchronistic or uncanny. I think I was late for a job interview, and so I'd say, man, I'm getting compulsive about this. And then I'd look down and say, Nico, concrete compulsive. And I remember once I was just saying to myself, Damn, Nico is everywhere. And then I looked down and it said, Nico is everywhere. I certainly felt close to him in the sense that, like, I know I felt like a duty. And I remember thinking that I've, this is my duty to write this story. And then coincidentally, I'd run across a, a clue that said, Nico on duty. So whether I liked it or not, I felt like I was getting close to him. I made a lot of presumptions, and that was what kind of what you had to do to sort of profile who would do this. First of all, I knew it was a guy, because it didn't seem like something a girl would do. And I figured he didn't have a father in the picture. The question was, how could he do this without anybody finding out and saying, hey, don't do this anymore? And these clues would go from 1967 to, uh, I think, about around 99, 98. Because I saw the date 1967, I figured, well, he must have been about, I don't know, 12 years old. In some ways, I got to watch him grow up because I felt like his personality kind of got a little more bolder through the years. Earliest stuff may just say Nico. And later on, he would call himself Nico Concrete Artist. 
The, the most fascinating clue I'd ever come across in the sidewalks was a question. Who is Nico? Just why does he? And it was, the rest of the question was cut off by a new section of sidewalk. You know, I wanted to know, was this guy alive? Why did he do it? But um, nobody, I mean, it was obvious that I was doing something weird. I took pictures of all of these things. So anybody taking photograph of, you know, something on the sidewalk, people would always kind of look through the corner that I would say, guy doing, you know? It was the first time I'd ever felt like I was the one paying attention in class. And, and I, it was like, you know, doesn't anybody else care? So I thought for a minute, well, maybe he worked for concrete contractors. And so I would run into the workers who were there on the job and ask them, sometimes right as they were actually about to tear out an eco from the sidewalk. And they would be like, what, you know, I gotta get to work, kid. My image of him was based on a borrowed face because I went to high school with a guy named Nico. He was a tough kid. He was a tough city kid. Went to juvenile hall and all that sort of thing. And so I had pictured this Nico as kind of being the sort of artful dodger of San Francisco. I figured he went to school in the neighborhood, so I went to the high school, Galileo, and I went to Francisco Middle School. And so I would start photocopying yearbook pictures from the 60s and 70s. And I would base this on guys who look like they just had that kind of James Dean look in their eye. It was by the North Beach Playground. I believe it was rainy day, and rainy days were always the best days to read the concrete because it washed away a lot of the dirt and you could read things that on other days you probably couldn't see. And I saw this etching that was the longest that I'd ever seen. It took up an entire sidewalk block. It was like a paragraph. And at first I thought, no, it can't be him. I think it said, America's a great country, built by the white man, owned by the Jew, ruined by the, and then the first word began with an N, but I can't actually say for sure. I mean, I can presume what it said, and you probably can too, but, but that, those, those letters were actually washed away from, and from foot traffic. And then I'd found quite a few others, and it was, you know, I'm, we're talking 10, 15, 20, and in some cases right by Nico, in other cases directly below. And as far as I could tell from the handwriting, it was Nico. I didn't kind of, I didn't want to believe it, because it didn't go with you know, what I identified with. I mean, to some extent, I wanted to identify as the kind of loner kid in the city, too. And this happened right before I finally found him. As far as, like, the Sherlock Holmes work, it all came together. Um, kind of felt more like Sam Spade. By that point, three years into it, I had spoken to the story to quite a bit of people and asked, if you ever hear anything about it, let me know. And so I, one of those finally came through, and someone said that they had met him. And then she called me back and remembered it, and then that's how I found him. Who knows who Nico is? A handful of people? My godfather, my sister, uh, my best friend. How did you never get caught? Pretend like you're tying your shoes. Pretend like you're tying your shoes. It's the oldest trick in the book. Or pretend like you dropped something. How many? How many do you think you've done? A thousand. A thousand? Huh? I'm just picking a thousand out of the air. At least a thousand. At least a thousand. Yeah. My thoughts were that if I do this really deep and do it right, mm -hmm. this stuff will last way into the future, and it'll be like the concrete will be all washed away with the pebbles poking up. My name will still be there. How far in the future were you were you visualizing this lasting? Oh, after I was dead. Yeah. yeah, I just think if I do it, maybe 5,000, maybe one, you know, 100 years, you know, maybe that'd be one or two left. It's kind of like any story you get into when you have a hunch about it. A lot of it was very close to what I had imagined, and a lot of it was completely different. He did have a very artful Dodger lifestyle. His father was out of the picture, and he had a very bohemian upbringing with kind of like a, a, a real carefree uh, parenting style from his mother, who was an artist and was friends with musicians and... He was just this kind of kid who was sort of, in some ways, forgotten. I pictured Nico as being kind of tough and maybe maybe out on his own, beating other kids up. I wasn't tough. I never yeah, beat well, that's this is where I'm wrong in a lot of things. And that's the thing that I, I've learned, that, I, that I've been wrong. And that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I would see a van all non-white immigration over by the Stockton Tunnel, and then I'd see it over on Russian Hill. There's how about white race consciousness, keep America white. I mean, it, in every... So I'm not about 12 or 13 of them in the same block of cement. I'd also saw the name Nico. And, well, and you, let's jump ahead. You probably want to know, did I write that stuff? Well, I'll be straight up honest with you. I, I think you did. Uh, that was that would be Billy that wrote that. That really long, complicated. Uh-huh. Do you know how much effort it would take to write that in wet concrete? Who else would know? Man, how to... I get in there. I was yeah. in there. I was bending yeah. down, tying my shoe. That's all people saw, and I was out yeah. of there. 
I, I, I can pick out about 15 to 20 that seem to me would be the same guy who did Nico, who would be you. But if I'm wrong... Here's can, the deal. Okay. When I was a kid growing up in the city, yeah, I'm talking a little kid. On Sunday, we would go to a march in Oakland for civil rights, for a peace march. On Monday, I'd go to school, and I'd get the shit kicked out of me by the very people that we were out putatively trying to help. And this sounds absurd now. But oh, it was all in my mind. It was all put together. What I did was I thought, what is the one thing I can do that will really bug my mother and her friends? Well, if you get right down to it, how does a boring suburban kid rebel against their parents? They go to the opposite extreme of what yeah. the parents believe in, right? This is... Yeah, How yeah. does a, a kid that's been like, raised by yeah. a bunch of beatnik peace activists, civil rights marchers, rebel yeah. against their parents? Sure. But um, I repent. Totally, I understand. I'm a hardcore green activist now, man. Yeah. Have some more cheese, man. Thanks. I've got to finish this up. It's been sitting out Sure. Um, so, well, what are you what are you going to write, man? You told me you were going to write this thing about Nico. I am writing about Nico. And that's why I'm trying to figure out who is Nico, why he does it. And I think I, I, I feel like I found out. That's I don't think that you technically wrote all these things. I think Nico did. And I think there's a difference between you and Nico, and I think Nico is pretty much is gone. I've not written my name, but I've written his name in wet concrete. In fact, that was the first line I wrote for the story was in the sidewalk. Walk up Montgomery Street toward the Union Street steps and make a right at Green Street. And right there, unless someone's double parked on top of it, it should still say, I found Nico. That story was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. And if you, if you want to see Delphine's story in a handsome paper-bound form. I've, in fact, I've got a copy right here. It's called Nico Concrete Commando, and it has pictures so that you can see what he's talking about. We're going to have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org, because today, friends, today I get to be your guide. We're going to go and see those invisible cities, your own area, things that you think you know when you do not. Stay tuned. This is Snap Judgment. I want you to welcome yourself back to the Snap Judgment Seat. I want you to go ahead and have a seat down, right down, right there. Because we're going to go places, places maybe you've never been before. You think you know this city, huh? You know this city? You don't know this here city. I'm going to take you for a ride and show you things you've never seen before. I already said that again, but I want to say it one more time. <laughs> back in the day when I had the baseball bats and I had picks, picks with fists on them. You've never seen that before. You don't know anything about that, do you, boy? Let me tell you something. People used to eat cotton candy, they did. Right there by the river. Anyway, we're going to take a ride at town of Big Shoulders, that windy city. You know what I'm talking about? Right off the Lake Michigan there. It gets cold, but it gets hot, too. It's hot there in Chi-Town. Alan Stephanie Fu, she's a real looker. She's going to Chi-Town. I told her not to get hurt. You know, she told me not, not to worry. Not to worry. She can take care of herself. We'll see. That's what I told her. We'll see. I guess it's what you call a dark and stormy night, if you'd got no imagination. But better out here than in there with the latest guy I've run out on. His face is slipperier than the sidewalk. City of big shoulders my tail. The men in Chicago wilt like daisies the second you blow on them. Girl could 
Rip her nylons walking around an ugly neighborhood like this one. Hey. Hey. Taxi. Look, I got a fare and I'm on waiting time. Gah, chump. Can't you see the flag is down? And I'll never get a cab. Wait a second. Taxi! Taxi! Driver, just go straight. Where are you going? Don't worry. I'll show you. There's a guy right behind me. Why don't you get in his cab and show him? And what a patsy I am. I almost turn around and look. A wise guy, huh? Last thing I need at this hour. All right, the water tower. The water tower? You want the castle or the shopping mall? The castle. All right, we're on our way. Look at this guy, crazy as a pair of waltzing mice. I look down at his nameplate. Name's Jack. Jack Clark. Hey, Jack, is this rain never gonna stop? Lady, you think if I could predict the weather, I'd be driving a cab for a living? Yowza. Man after my own heart. Tongue like an ashtray. But I own one. I can get him to warm up. <clears throat> hey, sister, you lean forward any farther, you're gonna be riding for free. Hey, you just keep your eyes on the road, buster. How is your night going? Nothing special. Any trouble? Uh, not from uh, women your size, generally. There we go, that's better. We get to talking. No fiction now. God's honest truth. It turns out that Jack has been driving a cab for 30 odd years. Well, believe it or not, I always wanted to drive a cab, because when I was a kid, it was just, you know, they were so cool. The guys that, you know, they knew the city, and you'd give them an address, and they'd know the name of the bar, and they'd maybe know people who worked there or something. They always had good jazz on the radio. But you've seen a lot of trouble in your day. Yeah, it was much more dangerous. I mean, you know, five, six cab drivers got killed every year here in the 80s and 90s. You know, a lot of them would just jump over the seat at you, you know, try to grab you. And you were supposed to just give them the money. And I always said you got to get a weapon before you're going to get my money. I wouldn't come to work without a cab. You shouldn't come to work without a gun or a knife or something. Jack has seen an awful lot over the years. And the Chicago he knows is different from the one any schmuck would see walking down the street. He sees the city under the city. The asphalt jungle. Because driving in a cab all night, you get to be the personal chauffeur of the low lifes and down Downright criminals. I get scared. People are being cheated, robbed, murdered, raped. Some of these young punks might clip you just to get a clean shirt. A hooligan. Get me a cab, you dopey ape. A man without human feeling or human mercy. I just found out all over again how big this city is. The jungle wind. Yes, sir. Jack's seen it all. And after 30 years, you learn a couple of tricks to steer clear of trouble, even though trouble is everywhere you look. Don't go south. This is a bridge that killed a cab driver here one night. Keep your doors locked, especially that left rear door. They love to slip in that left rear door. They just ambushed her with a baseball bat, these two girls. They almost killed the one girl. Don't go west. A lot, a lot of ways to die here. Don't go into the projects. Has he got a gun in there? What the hell is it? That's all you gotta know. Don't go south, don't go west. But it's creepy sometimes, too, because you can end up in very scary places. And then you think, oh God, am I ever gonna get out of here? But even though he knows the rules, that don't mean he follows them. I mean, there was a reason why he was driving around near Jerry's broken stoop at this hour. Gee, Jack, that all seems awful scary. Hey, I don't scare easy. But despite the fact that he knows the city inside out, there was something missing from Jack's life. He'd always wanted to be a writer. I mean, quips like that, they don't just come to you. This ain't the movies after all. And one day he tells me he was down at the station and he sees something even uglier than normal. You know, really what happened is I, I almost got arrested that night. I got in a beef with another cab driver, and the police pulled us over, and we ended up at the police station. Uh, and while I was at the police station, they, they brought this little young prostitute in. Now this is probably four in the morning on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, and the place was a madhouse. And she was just this, you know, she was so little, and she was so, she was obviously a kid. And what was going through your head? Well, unfortunately, what was going through my head is, oh, this is the girl I've been looking for. As soon as I got back in the cab, I started, I took a bunch of notes with my ticket for reckless driving. And he gets home, and he picks up the back of that ticket, 
and he starts to write and write and write and write. Christ, it looked like a kid, a little black kid hiding in a furniture pad in the middle of an alley. Two narrow wrists were crossed and a pair of tiny black hands gripped the edge of the pad. It was a girl, I realized. She was lying on her side. If size was all I had to go on, I would have guessed she was somewhere around nine or ten. But there was something much older in those eyes. You should see his face when he talks about writing. It lights up like a Christmas tree. But a cab driver? Writing a book about a prostitute at the station? Jack comes clean. What's the story? I wanted to write this private eye novel, but you know, what do I know about being a private eye? So I thought, well, I'll write a cab driver thing. And so Jack finishes the book, a story about a cab driver who tries to investigate the stabbing of this girl, Relita, the girl at the station. And then what? So he's got a book. What's he going to do with it? Well, he sure does get a lot of customers in this cab. I had a basket of books up there, and then I had um, one that was hanging up from the windshield. But they were terrified. Some of them were just terrified. It was so funny. You would just, you know, they would not say anything. Typical. People in this city stand stock still at a gunshot, but scared of a basket of books. But here's the thing. My ride wasn't free, and believe me, I tipped big, but... Before I left, Jack slipped me a book for my troubles. And it's good. There's gunshots and blood and real fast talkers, almost as fast as Jack himself. Some of the best noir I've ever seen. Turns out, I'm not the only one who thought so. Jack found a publisher. And what do you know? My hero. He becomes a bestseller, gets rave reviews from the Chicago Sun-Times, Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, those big, hot-shot fish wraps. And if you're in Chicago, this guy might just pick you up in his cab. Yep, he still drives one. So I guess this story's gonna have a happy ending. But what do you think this is, some Hollywood romance? No, the man don't get the girl in this tale. You know, pretty attractive. Hey, thanks. You know, for a cab driver. Oh yeah, thanks a lot, lady. Just kidding. You thinking of inviting me in? Can't. Just like to tease a guy to death, huh? Ah, you look like you can take it. I guess so. Well, maybe I'll run into you some other time. Sure. Just keep driving around. I'm always looking for a cab. All right, now. You want something good to read there, do you? You know the book they was talking about in that there piece? It's right available on this site. Staffjudgment.org. Check it out there. That's not a recommendation. For a recommendation, you really gotta pay, ain't that right, Jack? <laughs> you wanna wanna hear us on the Facebook there? Or Twitter? Uh, well, we ain't even got none of that yet, see? This is back in the noir days, and no one knows about Facebook and Twitter. No, no, you don't want no more social media, huh? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they say that Chicago's a big city. There's other big cities around here, too, see? And one of them is a big city right next door. They call it San Francisco. And we put our own team on the case. A fellow by the name of Roman Mars, see? He said, Roman, go and tell us something about this here San Francisco, but we don't trust you. We don't trust you to do it by yourself. Take our own Stephanie Fu with you, see there? She knows this story. This is 99% Invisible. That's Roman Mars. And this is Stephanie Fu. The plaza and seating area of this building are provided and maintained for the enjoyment of the public from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Privately owned public open space. Popos. P-O-P-O-S. And it has this logo that says public open space and with kind of this little like tree that's shaped like a house. And all of them have the same logo. The city requires that logo to be on there. It's a cool logo. Yeah. Pretty small sign though. My name's Blaine Merker. I'm an artist and part of a group of artists and designers called Rebar. We're based in San Francisco. Popo, they're a kind of unique set of spaces that were required to be provided by the developer as a condition of approval for the developer's building. So the Popos are on private property. They're owned most likely by the owner of the building. They look like public space. They feel like public space for the most part. This one that we're standing in is granite walkways and a fountain and grass. But technically speaking, these are totally privately owned. The only catch is that the developer is legally obliged to make this open to the public and to allow anyone to use it. And no one's quite sure what's allowed here, who's in charge, and what the codes of behavior should be. And just because they're public, 
doesn't mean they're easy to find. So this is sort of a strange environment to walk through to get to a public space. Yeah, it's got nice art though. Yeah. 536 Mission. It feels like walking into a library. You'll see when we walk through security, like there'll be this moment where you're like, okay, I just crossed a threshold. Making eye contact with people in authority and sort of acknowledging them, that's not something I ever feel in a park, right? I mean, I don't like walk into Dolores Park and have to like nod to somebody like, yes, it's okay that I'm here. There's cameras. One, two, three cameras in here. You want to try some badminton? In here? Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. There's a whole set of invisible codes and regulations that shape our behavior. Most of us aren't really consciously aware of them. How you hold yourself in public, where you think you can sit down, who you can talk to. It's only by doing something that push back against those codes that you actually can see the codes. Sort of like a scientist firing an electron at an atom to see where it is. If you fire an electron at an atom, you actually change the course of the atom. When you're in one of these spaces, when you start to push back against the codes of behavior, you actually change the codes of behavior while you do that. And nothing happened. Nothing Everyone happened. was just like, all right. <laughs> We've definitely played long enough probably to be noticed on camera, right? Right. And nobody came. Nobody came. Score one for public space. But if you really want to test the tolerance of a privately owned public open space, badminton may not be the best test. I mean, if you really want to make someone in authority uncomfortable, the most subversive act, especially right now, may be doing nothing at all. There's a few behaviors that you can sort of plausibly do that allow you to be idle, like fiddling with your phone, or smoking, or reading a book. But to just like lie down and do nothing, not okay. It draws attention to do nothing. The San Francisco Planning and Urban Research Association, which is better known as SPUR, has a great guide to all the popos in the city and recommendations about how to improve current and future popos, including a proposal to codify some of these rules for the social aspects of privately owned public open spaces. I think it's key to keep in mind that popos will never fully supplant the need for a true commons for true public spaces in a city. Popos can be these great hidden gems in the nooks and crannies of a city, but even if you're allowed to play badminton, the fact that you have to test for it means these spaces aren't really ours. Now you may have heard that you can take the snap out of Roman Mars. But you can't take the Roman Mars out of SNAP. No way. Roman Mars, our star steam producer, has gone on to other adventures. He now has his own show called 99% Invisible. I highly recommend it. It's where he goes and looks at the design, the architecture, the story behind objects and things and places. And today, he has a podcast. 99% Invisible. You can get it on the iTunes or wherever it is you do your thing. Now, if you want to get the Snap Judgment podcast, it's right there with it. Snapjudgment.org. Head on over to the website. We've got podcasts, movies, short films, mixes, and all kinds of episodes. Never be alone, friends. Snap Judgment goes with you wherever you are. Snap Judgment. Invisible Cities. We'll be right back in a moment. Invisible. Invisible. Cotton candy.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. And we promise not to talk like this no more, see? Because today on Snap Judgment, we're going to invisible cities. And you might think that you just need to get in your car and ride. Just need to get in your car and put the pedal to the metal, keep on riding out of a city, and you won't find any more of these parallel universes. Well, friend, that's where you are wrong. They're everywhere. And we want to get up close and personal. We asked Rita Daniels to do one thing. Rita Daniels did something else entirely, but it always comes back with a great story. I don't even want to give it a segue. Can we just play this story? Thank you very much. About a month ago, I was headed out to go do a story for Snap Judgment, and I knew that I would be in the town where my mom lives. So I invited her to spend the night with me in my motel room. And then just as I was getting on the plane, I got this message. New message. Hey, Pi, it's Mom. Just confirming. I'll pick you up at 10.30 at the airport and bring your swimsuit. We don't have to stay in that dumpy motel. I found a and b a friend recommended, and there's a pool. Okay? I'm going swimming. See you manana. Bye. It will be one hour and 55 minutes. Like no place you've ever been before, this is Albuquerque. I land in Albuquerque. My mom picks me up, and by the time we finally make it out to the B&B, way past the outskirts of town, it's close to midnight. And it's pretty obvious that we're the only guests there. The place is totally deserted. There's this derelict, broken-down truck in the driveway, and it doesn't seem like anybody's been here for quite some time. Which makes me wonder, who comes here? When I wake up early the next morning, I find my way to the indoor pool and go for a swim. And then I head to the kitchen, where I see this hunched-over little guy. I'm Arnold Sargent, and we live in an old, old adobe house. He's frantically scribbling on some chart taped to the freezer, and explains to me that he's tracking his swim miles for the year. Every morning, I swim 88 laps, which is half a mile. It's a wonderful pool. It is a wonderful pool, and I tell him as much. Then he tells me, If you would like to meet my wife, you're not required, but you're invited. And before I know it, he's grabbed my hand and leads me to the living room, where I sit, waiting for several minutes, expecting her to show up. But then, Arnold puts on this video. Hello, my name is Kit Sargent. In 1976, my husband and I purchased this old adobe house, which you see behind me. Under and that's when it starts to hit me that Arnold's wife is no longer amongst the living. And then the bomb drops. That swimming pool that I just took a little dip in has a hidden secret. We decided to put in a swimming pool in 1979 and found just under the surface of the ground intact rooms, a small plaza, storage cysts, human burials, and other features. As I'm sitting here taking in all this information, I recall that just off this room in the hall are two doors. One leads to the pool, but the other door, it turns out, leads to this ancient archaeological dig. You can go down and look. If can you we want. go see? Sure. Yeah. Here we are 12 feet down into the earth, and we had come down through many oh. deposits of many successive villages built over a 350-year period. We abandoned about 1658. This is the dig. And the little tags are, what do they identify? layer, exactly what it means. This was a cooking pot here. That's why it's all black. Right, so they and, were able to carbon date yeah. those. It turns out that and, Kit was pursuing a doctorate's degree in archaeology when she and Arnold uncovered these remnants of Pueblo civilization. And so Kit immediately notified her professors at the University of New Mexico, and they ended up co-sponsoring this major excavation. An excavation that took nine years to complete turning up over 150,000 pieces of pottery, as well as a total of 45 human remains. And standing down here, amongst these crumbling adobe walls, I look around, 
and feel like she's here, like I'm sneaking around in her office. We had set up a datum point at the corner of the house adjacent to the swimming pool from which everything in the site was measured. Am I the only one that finds it a little odd that an archaeologist would still put in a swimming pool on top of her own dig? This is our laboratory, even though it doesn't look like one. The building encloses our swimming pool here. There's water underneath this cover. Our volunteers have at one time or another actually stepped into the swimming pool, not realizing what they were doing. So it's a dangerous place to work. What Kit did, it can never be repeated. So anyway, it's why is, why is that? When Kit did the dig, this was 1980, there were procedures if you found a human burial. And Kit obviously followed the procedures very carefully. So today, when you find a burial, you don't touch. And then I learned that these burials are precious to the Pueblo Indians for a very specific reason. The tradition was to bury someone who had died beneath the floor of the room in which they lived. And many of the burials were children. And so they would bury the child inside of the room in which they lived, with the idea being that the spirit of the child would pass into another child that was born. So even though these bones are now in the Maxwell Museum of Anthropology for Curation, I have this feeling that the spirit of the Pueblo still remains pretty strong around here. Just like Kit's spirit. Watch your head. And even though I don't know where she's buried, I have this sneaking suspicion. So this is our farewell. I'm grateful and interested in the site. husband and I purchased this old adobe house. Under it lies a considerable archaeological site. We began to test the area when we decided to put in a swimming pool in 1979. We would like to thank Arnold Sargent and his family for making this story possible, sharing it with us, and showing us how to keep love alive. It was produced by our own Rita Daniels and Mark Ristich. On today's Snap Judgment episode, Invisible Cities, we've been exploring that parallel land, that alternate universe right next to us where things happen we can't quite see. And one of the things that people oftentimes obsess about is what happens when we pass away. That other alternate land right next to us. And I don't know what happens. And so we decided to bring in an expert. Mr. Benjamin Walker, he is the host of WFMU's Theory of Everything, and he knows stuff. Benjamin knows things. And that's why we asked him to tell us a story about his own experience the other side. Snap Judgment. When I was alive, I obsessed over what the afterlife would be like. I wasted a lot of time reading books and watching TV specials about heaven and hell and Jesus and Satan and the kingdom of God. But it really blows me away how wrong I was. I had no idea that I would be so wrong. I had no idea that the whole Judeo-Christianity thing was bunk. The Greeks, who would have thunk? I was ferried over by Charon, just like everybody else. And as we buzzed across the dark, viscous waters of the River Styx in his powerboat, 
He just stared ahead into the darkness, stone-faced and deaf to all of my questions, just like he is with everybody else. And when I got off the boat, I was met by Hades, just like everybody else. And I got the same speech he gives everybody else. Welcome to the underworld. This is not hell, nor is it heaven. It's my realm, Hades. Please, don't be disappointed, but this is it. There is no heaven, and there is no hell. This is it. Everyone who's passed on lives here, the do-gooders and the ne'er-do-wells alike. I know this isn't what you were expecting, but this is it. So please, try and have a good attitude. Keep in mind that it's not my fault that someone made up all that crap about heaven and hell. And after that, he had me sign the lease to my apartment. And that's when it hit me. I mean, signing a lease for even a year used to bother me. This one said forever. It took me a long time to find my apartment. The map that Hades gave me was totally useless. It's really easy to get lost down here. There's a uniformity of things that's just plain overwhelming. Trust me, I used to have a great sense of direction, but down here, meaningless. First of all, there's the grid plan. There are no winding paths or twisting boulevards down here in Hades. Just street after street connected right angle at right angle. The grid plan. And there's no architecture to speak of either. Each block has one building. This gray concrete rectangle that contains exactly 1,000 apartments. And there is nothing worse than these concrete boxes. But even Hades lives in one of them. The only difference is that he doesn't have to share it with 999 other shades. I call the people down here shades because they spend most of their time just staring out the window in their apartment. Occasionally you'll find one trudging down the sidewalk or standing in the middle of the street, but if you even say as much as hello, they just flit off in total confusion back to their window. But not everybody down here is a shade. There's Hades, of course, and myself. And then there's this guy. One afternoon, I got really lost, and I came to this block where there was no building. In fact, there was a crater. It was as if the building had been blown up somehow. And inside this crater was a guy pushing around a boulder. This guy would take this boulder and push it up the side of the crater, and then, when he was almost at the top, the boulder would slip from his hands and roll back down to the bottom. Then, the guy would walk back down to the bottom and start all over again, pushing the boulder up the other side. Yeah, amazing. That's the first thing I thought, too. What an individual. What a genius. I was so awestruck, it took me weeks to talk to the guy. He told me his name was Sisyphus and that he was doing his own thing. You have no idea how relieved I was to finally find someone down here doing something with purpose and meaning. Sisyphus was a revelation, an adumbration, and soon I was spending all of my time hanging out with him as he pushed his boulder up the crater side again and again. Watching him walk down the crater side to the bottom to start pushing his boulder back up again was especially inspiring. He seemed so happy, so full of accomplishment, so sure of himself. So you can understand how upsetting it was when he turned to me the other day and said, Okay, I've had enough. It's your turn now. I was so shocked that the scales immediately fell from my eyes, and I realized that Sisyphus was just a shade. In fact, one from my building. I realized Sisyphus is just an idea, an idea that's impossible to completely get rid of, even down here. 
That's why Hades had this little rock quarry built. And now it was my turn. My turn to exercise my individuality. Well, I just turned and ran off. I ran all the way here to the banks of the River Styx. I realize now that it's impossible to be anything but a shade here, so I want out. My hope is that everything will freeze over and I will be able to skate across the frozen River Styx to freedom. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I have hope. I won't give up hope. I can't give up hope. Snap Judgment's Invisible Cities. It was produced by myself, but never alone. Never, ever alone. Please, everybody, put your hands together for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. And because this was an all-hands-on-deck episode, it really is my great pleasure to introduce Team Snap. Mo Steph, that's Stephanie Fu. Rita Daniels, whose powers come from neither light nor darkness. And a suspect who can shoot an apple off of your head. And Joe Goling thinks that technology will save us from technology. Half man, half machine, Will Urbina, he's the one whom Joe is afraid of. Now, if you see the Corporation for Public Broadcasting dithering in the back of an old wardrobe, wondering if it's a good idea to go into the magic land, give them a good swift kick in the hind parts and shout, Welcome to Narnia, tricks! They will appreciate your courage and dedication. Many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We are inspired by Youth Speaks because the next generation can speak for itself, youthspeaks.org. And if you've got Nuvity Public over here and Creamery Radio over there, you mix them together and what tasty treat emerges? It's PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media, prx.org. And even though this is not the news, this has never been the news, this is afraid of the news. Still, still, you could hide in the pages of Mary Poppins. Fitter your days away at the chimney sweep. Fly away with an umbrella and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.